Guys, sometimes we may say things on this podcast that you don't want your parents to hear. So, you know, keep like, just put them in the other room if, they, if they're listening, because, you know, it might just not be appropriate for them. Landline. Could we have a landline theme <laughs> that goes landline? <laughs> you got mail. Hello, Jews in the month of June. Hello, Junes. Does that make any sense at all? You, did <laughs> you see what June, I did there? Yeah. Yeah, I'll give it Look, a five. I'm, I'm a, I'll allow it. I do not endorse it. No. I'm a novice punter at best. This is Unorthodox. I'm Mark Oppenheimer. A novice punter is a nunner. <laughs> see what you did there. So you're a pro. Yeah. I aspire to that. I am joined as ever by senior writer Liel Leibowitz. Hello. Hello. Do you see what I did there? You thought I was going to go step. You thought I was going to go left. I went right. The Ira glass ceiling against just you know and smash the, the patriarchy. Is and the, what I always say. The affianced deputy editor Stephanie Butner. Thank you. That is actually my official title now. It is on my um, business card. Are you going to change your name? Uh, we talked. We talked about, talk about this not, every right. week. Yes. You're not right. You're not. I'm not changing my name for a few reasons. One of is which, Ben changing? His, is he going to be Ben Butnick? I, you know, ben, be... Benjamin Butnick is like the dream. <laughs> that would be so great. That's like the sequel. Um, I'm not changing my name, mostly because I have like an internet paper trail with my name on it. Which you're um, proud of. Obviously. Which I'm proud of. Right. Also, like, I, there's something kind of funny. Like, I used to hate, I didn't hate my name, but it, it's like a, it's like a tough one. Yeah, Buttneck is, is yeah. so keeping, butt. there's like something like, I don't know that I, I'm empowering about being like, you know it's what? like not. I have the opportunity to get rid of it. I will keep it. I not... see you childhood bullies and I raise you. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's like when they were when they were done growth. giving a wedgie to Lifshitz, then they came for Butnik. Yeah, you know, first first they, first came. they came for the Butnik, but I said nothing because I wasn't a Butnik. <laughs> exactly. Holy cow! Like Benjamin Butnik is is the Jewish like before that he changed his name to Benjamin Button. Yeah, right. Wow. I wanted that to be our wedding hashtag, what, but what it got would vetoed. A Benjamin Butnik story be like? So he starts off super orthodox, super orthodox. <laughs> and then he goes slowly less and less pious, or is it the other way around? He starts off totally secular. <laughs> Oh, lordy. That'd be great. Um, our Jew of the Curious Week. Curious case. Our Jew of the Week. And this is, he's such a Jew. He's so of the week. He's so great, is uh, Stephen Tobolowsky, the actor whom you've seen in everything. He was Ned Ryerson in uh, Groundhog Day. Great, greatest movie. Sandy ever. Ryerson in Glee. Stew Beggs in Californication. Yada, yada. Uh, stay tuned for that interview. And our Gentile of the Week is the terrific Canadian uh, writer. Uh, he writes on men's issues for Esquire magazine. He has a new book out about being a dad and and uh, a husband. And he's married to a Jewess. So it's like he's he's a Gentile, but he's got one foot in our camp. Stephen Marsh will be with us as our Gentile of the Week. I was like, you're week. really not naming him for yep. a long time. And Who is he? <laughs> the buildup was huge. Stephen Marsh will be with us on the phone from Canada. All right, Jews, what's up? Little news of these Jews, of us Jews right here. Little? How little are these news, Stephanie? I have some seven-pound news. Seven-pound um, seven. nil ounces? I have a nephew. <gasps> Baby Silverman has been born. He has arrived. He is here. He is. It's now, do we do the cemento? Mazel tov, mazel tov, cemento. He is. He, he is. He is. He was born May 19th. Vaginally? Cesareanly? Vaginally. Mark Oppenheimer. What, what? I'm I'm speaking. Mean? I'm speaking for all of the peop- the birthing uh, community. I think doulas want to know. Midwives want to know. OBG women want to know. Men want to. We all wanted to know. Now we know. Yeah, it was a regular birth. It took a few hours. Awesome. Franny was a champ. Um, they always say they never say. <laughs> No, no she was. No one ever yeah. says like Fred was, was a, a nervous fucking whip. Yeah. She really like couldn't know at all. She that, screamed. She no. smacked her husband. She smacked Cliff. <laughs> no. no, and I heard Cliff was like a very good. He was very a good coach. Oh, I'm sure he was the best Lamaze coach ever. We had listeners write in with with names. I actually don't think anyone won the name contest. 
What were what, what came close? I don't even. Remember. I mean, did we have any good ones? We had some good ones. There was like that Israeli one. Um, Avi Noam. Someone was saying Cliff in Hebrew. What? Suk. Suk. Yeah. Suk. Um, but his name is. Literally, just okay. like <laughs> FYI, Stephanie just checked her notes. <laughs> no. Hold on. I got it here. I got it here. <laughs> I got confused. Oh, with yeah. So, okay. His, he's named. He's, he's officially, he's had a bris. His name is Noah Max. And his Hebrew name is Mendel after my grandfather, Milton, who is Mendel. <laughs> oh, my God. Because they were like, uh, it's like kind of intense. Mendel. I think they probably thought it was intense for a Mendel Mendel Silverman. Mendy Silverman. But that's his Hebrew name. That's it's just his oh, Hebrew name. Oh, it is not. Not to me, it's not. <laughs> as I see that, as we move into episodes... 200, 300, 400 of the show. As we, Baby Mendel is going to be on here. As we l- live our lives, as we dance ourselves along this path together, when I meet him, he's Mendy Silverman to me. How so what does Anthood look like for you? What are your responsibilities? Um, I don't know. I, I don't know what my responsibilities are. I feel like I've, I'm excited. I've been like amassing presents for him, and I, I can finally like give them to him. They take, they don't take up that much room, but because they're very small, because the clothes are so tiny, but I can give those to him. This is a good moment for me to say Thank you for not. Thank you both for not having used the word godmother or godfather yet. I am really creeped out when Jews talk about being a godmother or godfather because it is a, a specific sandak. Christian thing, right? I mean, so there is the sandak role, right, where you hold What's the that? boy. That's, oh, that's the person th- who holds the boy during the bris. Oh, and I, I have been one, and it was quite an honor. But, but even so, and I guess there's some idea you're supposed to look out for this kid. But the idea of the godfather, godmother, where you're responsible for their Christian education. I mean, it is really goyish. And it's so American, Americanized when you meet a Jew who talks about, oh, my godson, this, it's like, you don't have a, you don't have a godson. You have a kid whose parents you're friends with. So the funny thing is, uh, because the word in Hebrew for godfather is sandak, right? Uh-huh. Which is a term that we hear in Brissus sometimes. Um, the movie. Is that, yeah, is the movie the called? The Francis Ford Coppola movie in Hebrew is called the sandak. sandak. And like, so it's literally the guy who holds your baby at the breast. Yeah, you can't take Don Corleone <laughs> seriously. It's like, yeah, dude, I get it. Like, you're the guy who holds the baby at the breast. Like, you come to me on my baby's breast. You don't bring me looks. Like, you can't take that shit seriously at all. Uh, Ruined the movie for me. And so, Stephanie. Yes. So, so you're not the godmother. Bird. She's the aunt. She's Auntie Steph. What? 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 Actually, what technically, is the, Aunt Stoon. What is the <laughs> one thing that you're most excited to teach? Young no. Oh, that's good. Like your role in his life like would be Like maybe what? Instagram filters? <laughs> <laughs> Podcasting? Yeah, the importance of like staying cl- staying on mic. Baby no, when you when you look at other people. <laughs> just while, like, yeah, you, right. you keep your mouth on the mic. Just, just pivot. Pivot. Just pivot. pivot your we're head. all pivoting right now. <laughs> And awesome. you don't know because we're staying on mic. Because we're, yeah, we're, we're pros. I'm going to get him a baby microphone. Hey, Instagramming, podcasting. I'd like to think that I could be a source of, you know, those people who like aren't your parents, but you have always, you sort of go to them for advice in a lot of yeah, areas. Yeah, in my case, th- th- those were literally anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you, I'd, I'd hope to be that kind of, corner. no, I hope to be that kind of person who can be relied upon for, for smart answers. What life questions. advice would you give uh, a, a child starting oh, out in the world? I don't, I don't know. I don't, I think that, I think life advice I would give is that I'm not qualified to give life advice and I think that's the best life advice you can get no 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 I disagree I pivoted there yep I I would like to offer three words of advice now this has been conveyed to me a north uncle nope not working nope not working this has been conveyed to me by my own father this is literally the only advice worth anything that my father ever told me my father taught me nothing absolutely nothing except for these three words of wisdom that are actually kind of rules to live by. You ready for this? Yeah. Okay. Number one, um, never have a boss. That's common, right? A lot of people mm-hmm. have that. Number two, 
Never point a gun at anything you don't fully intend to kill, which I think is very good. And number three, and this will change your life. I mean it. It has mine. When you don't know what to order, get the club sandwich. That's good. These are such wise words. Do you have any of those in I your family? I can't tell you how many times I've been in a situation. I don't know what I want to eat. It's like, ah, dad said the club, club sandwich. sandwich. Yeah. My dad, when each of us went to college, I think he wrote a letter. And among the advice was, you know, Polonius, to thine own self be true. Mm-hmm. That was one. Um, if you can't be true to yourself, be true to someone really good. I'm pretty <laughs> sure Emma Watson said that. Uh, that's right. Um, I think if I'm to infer, I don't think it was ever explicitly stated, but I think that um, that uh, my mom would say, um, you know, the 30-day return period is just a suggestion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Oppenheimer's go wow. back generations. And, um, you don't real. need a receipt. That's you, right. you do not just need a, a receipt. a convincing story That's and true. a smile. And what else? Yeah. If I were to throw anything in there for little Mendy Silverman. Oh, you know another one that um, my mother told me, but I feel like she was quoting her father-in-law, my father's father. I don't know. It came from somewhere. Is uh, when you lend money, consider it a gift. You're probably not getting it back. Which is don't you should never do it. Yeah. Don't lend money. <laughs> you can't lend money to, to family. Yeah. <laughs> that's a nice that's a nice idea. Cause then it's just it's not a loan. It's a just don't yeah. Spend no time in life waiting for for the money to be repaid. But that was actually pre-Venmo, so that might be totally that's moot exactly now. Right. Uh in other news of the Jews, apparently club sandwiches are kosher. For or, babies. For, uh, to bacon. <laughs> bacon and babies. Stephanie, Baby bacon bits. Stephanie, what is this story that is going to make okay. eating Jews the world over happy? Wrap your mind around this. Professor Robert Gnus, I don't know if the G is silent, <laughs> Gnus, who's at Loyola Wait, University. Professor Robert Good News? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I got some Gnus for you, Jews. Um, so basically he speculates that the rules in Leviticus that say, you know, dividing the hoof and cheweth the cud and all that stuff. But those rules, and that's, you know, the basis of why you can't eat certain animals. And that's the sort of the basis of not eating pork and kashrut and stuff like that. He's saying that those rules were actually just for priests, not for followers. And so those rules, the purity, the, the food purity rules we're actually like, not. If you're a Kohen, okay, yeah. the rest of us. If not, just go nuts. Party on. But, you know, he's saying that at some point, I guess during the Babylonian exile. Something that was, was lost in translation. Yeah, and some guy was like, you know what? Everyone should do this. It'll bring you, it'll make you more holy. It'll bring you closer, blah, blah, blah. That That's, sounds like fake GNU's to me. <laughs> That's really GNU's you can use. <laughs> Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Our Jew of the Week is Stephen Tobolowsky. He is an actor whom you've definitely seen, um, if not on 
Groundhog Day than on Glee or um, Californication, which is my favorite of your roles, uh, Stu Beggs. Actually, Silicon Valley, you're making a run for it. Sorry, I'm I'm just going to stop fanboying out right now. Just get through the intro. I'm just going to get through the intro. <laughs> you have a new book. It's called My Adventures with God, which I thought was going to be this kind of very profound theological tract. And it turns out it's all about like doing blow and having orgies, um, which... <laughs> Well, that's a that's a big part of faith, you yes. know. So, you know, like I'm you end, up, you end up in a lot of bargains with God at those particular moments. <laughs> when did you have time to write this book? You are literally on every TV show. Well, I, I'm a morning person. Always been a morning person, so I'm usually up at six or so writing, and by ten I'm cooked. And so uh, I go to the studios. You know, when you're an actor, you don't work every day, but when you're a writer, you work all the time. So uh, I consider acting kind of the break in between the writing. The book is vignettes separated into five acts, sort of like the five books of, of the Torah, the first five books of the Torah. And they take us from childhood really all the way to the present with stops off in college at SMU and in Hollywood and New York and so forth. And it's basically a spiritual journey. How did you pitch this? Like when you sat down to start writing it, was the idea, this is going to be a spiritual memoir? Was the idea, let's just, you know, write about the or- the orgies in, in, you know, Topanga in the 70s? It went just opposite. I didn't pitch this book. What happened was I wrote The Dangerous Animals Club. And after that book was released, and it's a lot of stories about my childhood and starting out as an actor and falling in love, that kind of thing. Simon and Schuster called me and said, what we really love about your stories is the humor in the stories, but also some of these stories have a kind of spiritual twist to them. Is it possible that you could write another book of true stories and make the entire book held together with a spiritual theme? And I, of course, said, sure, not a problem. I had no idea what I was going to write. And that's when I came up with the conceit of the five books of the Torah, that everybody has a genesis, uh, you know, where we came from and our stories and our, what we desire. Everybody goes into slavery, like in Exodus, either with first loves, first jobs, or just staying in graduate school forever. <laughs> then we have this Leviticus moment in the middle of our lives where we say, hold it, this is what I am in my Leviticus moment. Uh, This is when I got married. This is when I became a father. This is when I came back to Judaism big time. And then we're shaped by mortality, as in the Book of Numbers, with lost. And uh, I lost my mother, and, and people lose dear ones and family friends. And then finally, if we're lucky, we end up with a Deuteronomy, where we end up, like Moses and the children of Israel, telling our stories to try to make sense of the entire journey. I, I thought the book was was absolutely brilliant, and I found it completely, completely engaging. Unlike Mark, I did not read it just enjoying the orgy bits. I, I actually enjoyed, <laughs> you know, the God bits. And and, and this is... Well, this you is, did not enjoy the orgy bits, Leo. They were fine. <laughs> what orgy bits are we talking about You know, here? come on. <laughs> uh, but, but what kind of struck me is, if really every life is like the five books of Moses, then each one of us is sort of uh, pressed to think that we may very well end up like Moses, meaning never really entering the promised land, which is 
really such an un-Hollywood way to think about it. I mean, aren't we kind of geared to think of spirituality like, oh, you'll be a good person and then good things will happen and your life will just will just be set straight? There's, there's something inherently depressing about the, the concept and also inherently Jewish. I, I totally agree. There, there's something inherently depressing about all, all the thoughts of spirituality because, truthfully, it is an idle speculation unless you are in the middle of a catastrophe. If, if, you're, if your life or the life of someone that is precious to you is on the line, you see how important the lessons of the Torah and the Talmud are. When you read in the Talmud, when the question in the Talmud is that what happened to the original set of the Ten Commandments, right? The one that Moses broke, right? right? They're in the Ark, too. That, that not just the, whole, the second set, but the first set is too, because even though they're broken, they're holy. Now, that is an interesting story and an idle speculation until your mother starts falling to pieces with Alzheimer's. And then you take a look at her and you realize, damn, the first set of broken tablets are in the R2. They are holy. And then suddenly the, the story is no longer a story, but is an instruction for dealing with a catastrophe. So I imagine you get recognized all the time and that people sort of feel like they know you based on all these roles that you've played. Did that make yeah. you did that make it harder to, you know, to write a book about something, you know, something so so intimate and so profound as as faith and religion or did that make you sort of want to show this other side of yourself? And I and and the other thing is you're a seeker and an intellectual in a town that doesn't always reward that and that in fact has some skepticism of it. I mean, I've I've done a lot of reporting in um, in L.A. I mean, and, and this is true of New York as well, by the way, yeah. Um, yeah. which yeah. is that in the creative arts, you know, whether it's theater, whether it's writing, whether it's film, m- the presumption is that everyone is secular. Their presumption is that you would never do what you do, which is say, you know, I prefer not to work on Shabbat if at all possible. I mean, that's the kind of thing that bring, can bring you in for real judgment. So are you judged? Yeah. Did people read the book and say, oh, wow, we had no idea you were so into these weird things. Well, what I have found is interesting. I've found both things true in this case. I've had a lot of people in the industry come up to me and they congratulate me on the book and they say, so how's it doing? (laughs) (laughs) You should say God is pleased. (laughs) But at the same time, like yesterday, uh, we began working on one day at a time. And Norman Lear had read my book in the interim Wow, and we, and so I'm in there, and Norman walks in, and he has tears in his eyes, and he hugs me, and he says, "Stephen, I love your book so much. It's so beautiful." And so what I find is all the people that, that initially you would think would be secular in a way or business oriented in a way, they do love the ideas in the book, and they cling to it because I think everybody has a very powerful spiritual life. We just aren't terribly specific about it all the time. Well, that's so funny because we think about being Jewish in Hollywood. We're like, oh, you know, there's that stereotype, but then there's also, you know, some truth to it. But it sounds like you're actually being really Jewish in Hollywood. Like you're really doing nah. it. And you're in the no, minority, no, no. right? Being no, sort of outspoken. I, I'm, I'm in a minority in, in that uh, maybe I really embrace it in a 
traditional way, but I, I work on Shabbat most of the time. I can't, I can't preserve that. And once I was doing a movie and they're going to shoot it on Yom Kippur. And I said, guys, guys, we got to do something to do this. And they said, no. And weren't there a bunch of Jews in that movie? Yeah, good Lord. There were. Rashida, Rashida Jones was that we had several, we had several Jews in it. So, and we were all upset about it. And I said, this is what I'll do. I'll come. I'm going to bring my prayer book. Let's get early. I'll do the first prayers of Yom Kippur. We'll do it together. We'll fast during the day. And then I'll do the Amida at lunch. And I'll do, uh, and I'll do Over the, craft services? Uh, and I'll do the uh, confessional at lunch. Oh, my and God. And then in the evening, we'll do the concluding prayers of Yom Kippur. And that's what it'll be this year. You and Rashida are in this movie, and they won't let yeah, like, you take the day off? I just off? assumed Hollywood shuts down on Yom Kippur. No, 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 no. You know, we always... We gravitate to the things in our faith that make sense to us. So I gravitated toward the lines in the Talmud that said, the three things you need to do, what you need to learn is you need to learn to pray quickly, pray on the road, and avoid ruins. Now, (laughs) the ruins we don't have to worry about. But in terms of the Yom Kippur service during a film shoot, we had to learn to pray quickly and pray on the road. No, that's like the new. You're like the new Sandy Koufax because <laughs> you're actually are working within these con- confines. Yeah, um, Sandy. Sandy didn't play any Yom but Stephen prayed on the Yom Kippur. Prayed that's a Yom-Kippur. way bigger achievement. <laughs> um, you came back to Judaism. You came back to synagogue uh, yeah. observance after your mother died of Alzheimer's. Yes. Right. And well, well, I came back before. Uh, I, I came back to Judaism probably 10 years or so before my mother died. And I, that's when I was in the little shul, the little shul that was kind of orthodox slash conservative shul, one of those little houses, you know, in the studio city. It was just wonderful. And when my mother passed away is when I wanted to honor that passing by going to the morning and evening services for 11 months. And that's when I had to switch synagogues because the little shul didn't have minions. You know, it's interesting. That that was very interesting for me to learn. That's when I first started going to shul with any regularity was after my grandfather died. And you're not even, you're not obligated to say Kaddish for a grandparent, right? Um, But, you know, I figured no one else is saying Kaddish for him. So I thought I'll go. And then, you know, and I've seen this happen time and again in, in my community, which is someone starts coming for that reason and then they just don't stop. They just keep, they just, the, the routine is comforting beyond the 11 it, months. Well, it was, yes, that is true. And it was something else too, I felt. The, the idea of saying the Kaddish for my mother was so important to me in terms of healing because it works. The reason why the Kaddish... You do it is because it works. It helps you through grief. Right. Is that I understood how important it was to be able to say that prayer, and you needed 10 people. And at 7.30 in the morning, I would see new faces come in of people who had lost a spouse, a mother, a father, a child. And I'm thinking, I can't let them down. Right. So even when my 11 months ended, I stayed another year pretty much doing morning and evening just to be one of the 10 
to ensure that there would be a minion. But See, just, I, that was just what people had done for me. That's right. And, and kind of pass it on. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that one of the things rabbis should talk to 12 and 13 year old children about who are in the bar and bat mitzvah season is, you know, once you cross this threshold, we might call you sometimes because your body will be needed so someone else can, can mourn properly. There was, uh, we were in mourning and we needed someone for the evening service and they brought in uh, a bar mitzvah. He had just done it and they said, we need you to fill out the minion and he did it and afterwards we all thanked him and the kid was almost in tears and he said, I never felt so important in my life. <laughs> That's right. It's something you can do just by being. That's right. You know? Let me ask and you a it question. It is important. Yeah. And, and this is, uh, I, I apologize. I, I realize you're probably completely sick and tired of talking <laughs> about this, but, you know, it is a form of spirituality, uh, not to <laughs> say religion for many people. <laughs> of course, I'm talking about Groundhog Day. Um What's it like to be affiliated with something that really, you know, it's it's studied in in like theological seminaries? Should this we explain to has... Stephanie what Groundhog Day I is? I know what Groundhog Day is. Groundhog Day. I know about the Buddhist connections. I we talked about it when I was in graduate school. Like okay. I'm all in. All right, all right. Sorry, we just Stephen. We had to check to make sure the millennial here knew what Groundhog Day was. So. <sighs> Sorry, Liel. Could... Are you so tired <laughs> of people calling no. you Ned in different no. occasions? They did it. Yes. But what's always so amusing to me, I was over at the synagogue yesterday. Uh, they're doing some sort of benefit, and they wanted a signed copy of the book for some kind of auction. So anyway, I'm in there, and, and one of the people who works in the office, and they said, Bing! <laughs> Bing! Has anyone ever said that to you? And I said... You're the first today. <laughs> it, it happens all the time, but I got to say, it's such a great movie. And it's it, like you say, you, you know, the spiritual connection, you've done it. I, they flew me up to the Oakland Raiders because the Oakland Raiders use Groundhog Day as a training film. <laughs> now, maybe that explains some of the problems the Oakland about Raiders say. have been having. They play the, the same game year. every. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I like Groundhog Day a lot, but for me, Stu Beggs is just, you know, I'm a huge fan of Californication and we've had Duchovny on this show. And I think Duchovny is always expecting to talk X-Files, right? And all I want to talk about was Californication, which I think is a, an extremely smart show. And I felt like the casting was just stupendous. And when you said that you were hung like a moose, that doesn't leave me, you know, that that's still with me. That's just like it haunts it's a my mind. He is incorporated in this podcast that's right. repeatedly. Yeah. <laughs> it haunts my dreams. What is your it's, favorite? Well, 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 doing Californication was a party. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life. Uh, the cast was spectacular. The writers were great. The directors were wonderful. The crew, we all loved working together. It was so wonderful. And in between my first and second year, is when I had my open-heart surgery uh-huh. that I write about in the book. And I remember Tom Caponis, the, the head writer, producer of uh, Californication, called me up at home and said, Stephen, we'd like to have you naked in the first show of uh, Californication this season. How are you with that? And I said, well, Tom, I have to tell you something. Uh, since last you saw me, 
I've had open heart surgery and I've lost about 25 pounds. I look kind of different and I have a big scar running down my chest. Pause. And then Tom goes, that's great. (laughs) (laughs) We love the scars. That's fantastic. That's even better. So what do you think about wearing a cod piece and being naked in the scene? I go, that's great, Tom. (laughs) I'm in shul. I'm in shul Saturday. Torah's being carried around. And one of the uh, elder statesmen, uh, a lady, uh, sidled up to me as the Torah's going around. Everyone's kissing the Torah, and she goes, I love California kids. <laughs> you must be turned on all the time. It's, and I'm thinking, this is so inappropriate. I love I love Californication. It's one of my favorite shows ever. Is there a place you get recognized that you just hate it? Like, if someone comes up to you in shul, do you not like... I mean, is there any sort of... The urinal, perhaps? The shul urinal? The shulinol. Well, well the, the shul and the urinal are okay. <laughs> Especially the urinal. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, we know. It's going to be a short talk. <laughs> the, the places where it's where it's difficult is when I'm out with my wife and we're having one of those precious romantic dinners, and then someone comes up and they say, excuse me, I don't mean to interrupt. I don't <laughs> want to interrupt your dinner. And then goes to interrupt your dinner. Right. I, I did, we did have, what, what is the rating of your, of your podcast? Oh, anything uh, goes. Triple X. Okay. Tri- yeah. So I'm at one of those romantic dinners <laughs> with my wife, and a woman, grown-up woman, came up to my table and said, excuse me, I don't mean to interrupt, <laughs> but is your penis as big as they say on California? <laughs> now we're having dinner. Was she asking you or your wife? Yeah. <laughs> this is a question directed to. I'm stunned. And my wife puts her hand across me and says, yes. Any other <laughs> questions? <laughs> You don't mess with Anne. Don't mess with Anne. Stephen Tobolowsky, thank you for being our Jew of the Week. Author, scholar, actor. Author, scholar, actor. Yasher Koach. This has been amazing. (laughs) Uh, Next time I'm in LA, I'm buying you drinks. And uh, thank you so much for being our guest. And thanks for the book. It's really a special book. Thank you so much for the talk. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. crew it is time for some pod biz tonight may 16th i will be moderating a zoom conversation with rabbi sharon browse and shy held about each of their new books that's at 6 p.m eastern and the final event in my unpacking the book series with the jewish book council and the jewish museum this one's on zoom so no matter where you are i hope you can make it and tonight is actually a double header for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive.
We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Hey, uh, live show coming up. We will be back at the Jewish Community Center of Manhattan, the JCC Manhattan on July 25th. You can search their website for information. Liel, who do we have for that show? Well, President Trump. President Trump will be there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Who else? Jared as well. Jared. Mel Brooks. Mel Gibson. Uh, Mel Gibson. (laughs) Shimon Perez, back from the dead. In conversation, Mel Brooks and Mel Gibson. What wouldn't you give to have that panel? I would love that. That would be amazing. (laughs) July 25th. With Mel B and Mel C (laughs) from the Spice Girls. An all-male panel. And, and, A panel. All right. So uh, so check us out July 25th at the JCC Manhattan. Our last sold-out show was amazing. This one will be incredible, amazing. It will make the JCC great again. It will be high energy and amazing. Um, so wait, I just want to make sure because I've only seen your name in print. Is it Stephen or Stephen? Stephen. Stephen Marsh. Marsh, yeah, like a swamp. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Can I have a moment to say that I think that Steph Curry has led a billion people to think that S-T-E-P-H-E-N is anything other than Stephen, but that's a spelling of st- like has have, has that been a problem for you? Have, is there yeah, more Stephen out there? Because I was hearing a guy, I was hearing a guy. He wrote a piece about how like how insulting it was that. You know, he had a long Indian name, and no one was pronouncing his name correctly. And I was like, well, my name is Stephen Marsh, and no one pronounces my name right. You're like, I'm just a white man trying to get my name pronounced correctly. <laughs> well, all I'm saying is, like, no, nobody ever pronounces anybody's name right. That's like, true. <laughs> like, unless your name is Adam Jones or, like, Michael right. Lee. It's actually Jones. Right. Um, <laughs> right. It's Jonas. Okay, so, Stephen, we're going to introduce you, and then we'll get started. Okay, great. All right. Our Gentile this week is Stephen March. He's an, a columnist for Esquire. It's Marsh. <laughs> what did I say? March. You said March. No! After all this introduction. Sorry. I'm just, I'm just trying to topple the patriarchy one mispronunciation at a time. <laughs> our, okay. our Gentile this week is Stephen Marsh. He's a columnist for Esquire and the author of the new book, The Unmade Bed, The Messy Truth About Men and Women in the 21st Century. Welcome, Stephen. Hi. Pleasure to be here. So this book, man... You are one woke dude. <laughs> Am I? Yeah, right? You wrote a whole book about like she means deconstructing com- masculinity and feminism and and like well, I, I usually I'm treated as the opposite. I mean, usually I'm treated as like uh you know, like Norman Mailer, but without the talent. Like, Only in you know, Canada, violently, dude. <laughs> uh, violently, like, a, you know, because I write for Esquire, like, violently uh, patriarchal or something. Can we go back so a second? I'm sec- glad to know I'm woke. Oh, you're definitely patriarchal. I've ever heard that. So. <laughs> well, that's uh, what I was just, I was, like, reading the book, and I was just like, bro is woke. 
but he's a bro who's woke. I mean, I think you just nailed it, which is I'm he's not, yeah. not a bro. I absolutely <laughs> hate the term bro. I think it's one of the uh, it's one of these words that they use to contemn male friendship. Are you a self-hating bro? <laughs> yeah. What you wrote? A we, book. we know from that. I, I, I definitely object to the word bro. I mean, I find it's actually a pretty fascinating word. There's a special term for kinds of words that by using by calling someone that word, you, you identify them like that. That makes you a bro when you use the word bro. And so it has this very specific semantic function. Like it's a way of, of saying that anything men do together must be stupid. And that's actually a very, a very terrible thing for men to believe because, you know, male, the loss of male friendship is actually kind of a crisis in the, in the world. So that's one of the things you write about in the book, and I really liked the book. I actually, you don't know this, but I've seen you on stage. I was at the Kingston Literary Festival in Ontario two years ago. Oh, my and, God. And I forget what you were doing. It was like the only time I've seen you. I saw the whole Canadian literary royalty. Sheila Hetty was there. Uh, it was— it Real was, who's who. Yeah, it was a real who's who of north of the border literary royalty. And you were mm-hmm. terrific. And then— um, uh, you come out with this book, Collecting Your Columns, which I really, or not collecting, but collecting and enriching your columns, which I really enjoyed. Um, and it's about masculinity, which is a, um, it's a, and it's about fatherhood, and it has footnotes by your wife, which are hilarious. You, you're writing about this thing that it's almost like what you just said about bro, which is if you say bro, you are a bro. I mean, if you're writing about masculinity, you're saying you get called a misogynist just for taking manhood or men's stuff seriously? Is that the way it happens? Automatically. I mean, it's pretty, it is very, it is very interesting to me that like, you know, this is maybe my 50th interview about this book. I, I've spoken to two men so far. And now you're doubling like, that on this show. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So these are like the, the, like, these are the three and four. These are number three and four. And, of the men and like talked a to thousand and one. And by the way, one of us is completely unreconstructed. So. Right. <laughs> Liel is I four mean, men, basically. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the thing, the thing that I find like fascinating is that talking about masculinity is both unmanly and it also is like, you know, like the, the feminist discourse is kind of like, you, you shouldn't talk about this stuff and because you're a man and that's really unhealthy. Like that is, especially because men are like 70 years behind women in, in their thinking about gender and masculinity, like this, the, the toxic masculinity, which is absolutely infused our culture right now and, you know, American politics as well, um, is largely the result of like not examining what is actually happening to men and women from a a male point of view. Stephen, what's, what's toxic masculinity to you? Well, I mean, Donald Trump would probably be the, um, like, I cannot think of a better example of, of what that would be. Um, you know, to me, like the, the heart of toxic masculinity is that, there's this economic change that's underway and that is very deep and it has run for a hundred years, which is that women make economic progress every year. And there's really like people, when you look at the data, um, it's pretty incontrovertible. Like women's labor participation rate increases every year across the developed world. Women's, um, Participation in the professions increases every year. Women are m- much more educated than men now. They also are, uh, you know, increasingly the breadwinner in families. So it's about 40% of American households have a clear female breadwinner. Um, and what, what toxic masculinity is, is basically the failure to deal with this economic reality in an emotional way. 
and, and, and in, a, in a way that, in, you know, that creates a way to be a, to feel like a healthy man and be and an unashamed man. So do you not buy that there may be some, how would I call it, a residual primitive, you know, conceptions of masculinity that actually have very little to do with these, you know, supposed modern anxieties, but are just rooted in deeply traditional um, understanding of, of what makes a man? Like if I believe that a man, you know, must uh, obey a certain, you know, code of behavior, uh, that strikes you as completely primitive. Uh, well, it's just not modern. Like, right. Modern life, like modern advanced economies are economies in which those traditional values are just shredded. Right. One after, one after another. And like, you know, women have adjusted to that. They have, through this immense discourse called feminism, which presents hundreds of ways of being a powerful woman. You know, we do our our vision of masculinity of what involves being a good man, being being a powerful man, being like a strong man, are just like they they really are stuck in in a time that doesn't exist anymore because because the economic reality has changed. And so, yeah, there are all these traditional forms of masculinity, but they they tend almost in, inherently to devolve into uh, into toxic toxic forms of discourse just because they're not just because they're not in touch with reality. Or, or uh, because, as you yourself just admitted a few minutes ago, because there is no other outlet for these conversations to be had, because the second you start talking about it seriously, you're accused, regardless uh, of being, you know, a toxic male, because it's not cool to talk about being a man. Yeah, look, there's two ways to talk about being a man right now. One is to call yourself a feminist, which is actually really just not helpful. Like, because it's also like a little patronizing. Why? I don't know. Like these guys, like those SNL skits about the guys. You can't win, man. No, like I saw a guy wearing a shirt wearing like the future is female, and I'm like, okay, bro, are you like you? So you think someone's broy for wearing a shirt? No, I'm just like, oh, okay. What are you doing? It's an affect. I mean, as I say in the book, like we don't really need male feminists; we need decent men. You know, and but the other way of talking about masculinity is the red pill and men's rights organizations, which, of course, are just pure bullshit. And like it's not in the book, but I did a piece for The Guardian uh, where I like went deep into the red pill and spent like a month on the red pill. What is the red? What is the red pill? The red pill is a men's rights group on Reddit. It's, It's the largest forum in the world for. I guess what you would call toxic masculinity. <laughs> you know, it, it's a, it's a, um, it's like uh, a playground oh, no, for right. assholes. It's like basically. a matrix based. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was thinking. Reference. Yeah. That's what it is. Okay. It, it's like, it's like a, the idea is that once you swallow the idea, once you get past feminism, you realize that women are actually have all the power and men have none of the power. And they talk about this and you know, when you like, so people treat this like it's a major political force, but then when you actually go on, the site and like spend time with these guys. It's really mostly 19 year old guys who are telling each other their workout schedules and how you need to <laughs> and actually, how, like, badly like, they wish girls would talk to them. What's interesting to me is that it seems like what got you started thinking about this is your own personal life. And when your when your wife, Sarah mm-hmm. Fulford got a job, got offered, you guys were living in Brooklyn. She got offered a job being the, being the editor in chief of Toronto life, which is, you know, like a huge, huge magazine up there. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, your life, like these things were sort of thrown into stark relief. Like you were yes, broke. I mean, well, I think I, the journey, like the journey that I think when you look at the data that you see, I kind of 
lived personally, which was like, suddenly my wife is the boss and I'm at home with the kids and I'm trying to make a living, but it's like, she's like, her career is dominant because she's out, you know, she's running a magazine and so she's out 12 hours a day. So I'm doing caretaking. And then of course I also saw the social reaction to it, which was, you know, very different between generations, right? Like guys like my dad's age, women, my dad, my mom's age thought it was crazy. I mean, they just thought it was, they thought it was some deep political act, right? Whereas my other friends were like, well, she's making more money. I just have to say it, you know, I read this and I, I related to it a lot in your book. Um, this was a part where I thought I was surprised at how, I mean, you, you, you took to it, but there was some discomfort as well. And my experience, I mean, my wife has much more earning potential than, than I do. And, you know, she's a a highly educated lawyer and I'm, you know, we know what I'm doing. I'm doing it right. I'm doing it right. This is what I'm doing. Right. But those, those days when I was home with the baby, those were like sheer bliss. I mean, everybody looks at a dad with a baby, like he's some sort of magician. Uh, you know, everyone wants to help you. Everyone gets out of the way. Everyone. I mean, it's the exact, a dad walks onto a plane with a baby. Everyone says, oh, a woman walks onto a plane with a baby. Everyone's like, stay away from me. Runs for the, like, they (laughs) fuck it. I'll take the next flight. Like, and I mean, it was like, I want to have another baby just to have those mornings and days in the park where it's, me and 20 moms and all of our babies. Those were, it's like the best scene from a Tom Parada novel. I mean, it was just amazing. And I was a little surprprised. I mean, here you are, you're an educated guy. You would, you, you were a writer, you had a novel out, you, you know, good degrees from good schools and you have a, and you know, a successful wife. And now you have a baby. What on earth was the problem? Well, you know, the problem I think is the problem that we're all facing men and women together, which is that you want to be a mammal. And, you know, I loved being the mammalian little caretaker. I mean, I I really did. But the other thing is, I want to change the world. I want to feel like I've made Eh. a mark, right? And, like, I think the struggle we all feel, men and women both, is, is the tension between these two realities. And figuring out some way to do both of those things is a struggle that exists. You know, I, I think there is a, there is a way of framing it strictly as a female question, and I think that's really unhelpful. So you alerted me to your book, and you said, look, I'm not a Jew, but I'm married to one. You should have me on your show. And right. I'm married to one, and she footnoted my book. And, she annotated everything. <laughs> and yeah. that was enough for me. I mean, you know, here you are. Uh, and here's my question. Since you're someone who's out of the closet as being married to, to a Jewess, um, yeah. let's shift gears a little bit. Do you, do you feel like you're married to a Jewess? Like, do you look, do you turn to her in the morning sometimes and think that's my Jewish wife? You know, we've been together so long, I think, like, I'm definitely a goy in a Jewish house. Like, my children are Jewish, too, eh? Like, and they're, <laughs> we do Shabbat and Canadian, and we, eh? And Canadian, yeah. Like, we, and you know, it's Canadian, so it's multicultural. You're supposed to preserve your heritage. You're not supposed to lose it. So, like, we do Shabbat dinner, and we do, we do all the holidays, and we, the kids go to Jewish school, and they come back and talk about the Jewish stories. So, like... I, I don't. I, I think. It, I. I don't wake up and think. Oh, I'm with a Jewish wife. I think I'm in a Jewish house. But you, you have Christmas I mean? decorations in the attic, right? Where your office is. Um, yeah, there, there's definitely. There's definitely. Well, the, no, they're in the basement actually. But like, yeah, <laughs> oh, the like, basement that never gets cleaned. I mean, the one. The one thing is, like I said, like I can't not do Christmas. Uh huh. Under. Hey, like, so you got a tree. Like, You're a Jew, basically. Like, yeah, you know. And the funny thing was. <laughs> You know, my son was so funny. Like, it was like such a Canadian moment where he came back and said, Dad, why don't we do Eid? <laughs> why don't we do Eid Mubarak? I was like, well, 
and I was like, well, we're not Muslim. He said, but we do everything else. <laughs> oh, snap. Like, well, you do have a point there. I mean, maybe we should start doing it. Do you, so do you sometimes, like when you go out for your man time, which you eloquently mm-hmm. talk about needing, do you feel like you need, is, is some of it like Gentile man time? Like, I got to go out Definitely with not. my... No, okay, never mind. Not at all. Not at I all. mean, it's all juice. No, what it, like I no, there's not. It's not. Um, I don't really feel I need man time either. I like. I, I'm not sure that I I, I I line those things up. I mean, there definitely are moments. Well, like you know, I like bacon, and there's no bacon in the house, so I go out and I eat bacon. But that's not really. Is that? I guess that's Gentile time. <laughs> like, I mean, but it's not like I don't really feel there's a lot of contradiction there because, of course, I have lots of Jewish friends who bake it. So could you, you know. take your kid for like a bacon cheeseburger? Definitely. OK. Oh, yeah. I, I forget who it was. Maybe it was um, Rakoff who said, like, uh, you know, the important thing about mixed marriage is that the kids know that both sides are full of shit. Like, you know, I think that's really the important thing to to recognize. But like, you know, you're living to get cross-cultural exchange. You start to realize like, oh, well, there's just like a billion ways of doing this. So you have before you, well, not literally because you're on the phone, a panel of three internationally recognized Jewish experts. Do you have any questions for us that your three Jewish immediate family members can't (laughs) answer? Uh, Any anything that we could help you figure out that's puzzled you about the chosen people? Okay, this is. This is my question. I was in New York recently. Um, it was, okay, it was Good Friday. So it was, I think Passover was, it was, it was happening around then. I'm not sure if it was, it wasn't the first night of Passover, but it was mid-Passover maybe. Arrive at LaGuardia, I'm taking the cab uh, into the city, and um, I saw a group of, I believe, Satmars, although, you know, I don't, I'm not 100% sure, um, and they appeared to be plane spotting. Do you know what that is? What is plane spotting? Plane spotting is like train spotting. It's like, it's like bird watching, except you do it for planes. Like you look at the serial, you look, you take binoculars, you look at the serial number, and it tells you what kind of plane it is, and then you talk to your other enthusiasts about what that model of plane might be. I think they're just looking for the Mashiach to arrive. I think they're just maybe hoping that they're the like Messiah he's on would, the next flight yeah, the from Tel Aviv. <laughs> and you were wondering, is this normal for the Satmar? Well, why? I mean, I was talking about my wife, and it's like, is it because it's like a very, um, like, is this a hobby that is common? <laughs> okay, so we could well, find you can't watch TV, dude. The <laughs> options are very it's limited. A low cost yeah, like... Shabbos holiday event. I mean, I've only ever heard of British people doing this, so. <laughs> You know, they say dress, what is it? Think British. Think Yiddish, dress, dress British. British. Yeah. So we consulted several people on our staff about this who would know. And we have found zero indication that this is any sort of trend. I mean, hopefully our listeners write in and they're like, actually, I am part of the like. The Lake Satmar, Satmar, yeah, Satmar like, uh, JFK plane watching. Yeah, like I go every Sunday. So hopefully someone will write in. But we have zero. We can't, can't help you at all. Seeing? Like, may, uh, like maybe I'm wrong. Like. That's just what it looked like to me, random Canadian dude flying in. But like, what were they looking? Stephen, they're not. They're not looking for planes. They're 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 waiting for God. I like that they're binoculars. (laughs) Of course. What else (laughs) would you suggest? They want to be prepared. I mean, they think like they're not going to see the Messiah unless they have like their eyes. You know, forty-five by forty lenses. Their eyes were watching God. (laughs) Stephen, thank you so much. Um, My pleasure. 
everyone can go out and get the unmade bed and send, you know, send angry letters to him. Yeah. Yes. Accuse him of being a rape apologist. Thanks, Thank you. Steven. Thanks, Steven. My All right, to the mailbox. First letter. Uh, a little bit self-serving here because it's about our wonderful sponsor, PJ Library. But you know what? We didn't pay her for this. We didn't solicit this. I just It was a sweet, touching letter. Hello, Unorthodox. I'm a bagel Jew, born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, and was introduced to your podcast by my husband, a Chinese atheist who went to Catholic school. Wow. That's, I love him. That He's doing real missionary work for us. Brings it. Together, we have two, very soon to be three, Junese kids and are avid listeners of Unorthodox. I might be your biggest fan. Oh, I... I love this woman so much. She goes on. I noticed the recent sponsorship from PJ Library and felt compelled to share the role that PJ Library has played in our family. It wasn't until I had a family and started receiving books from PJ Library that I was moved to incorporate Jewish traditions into our daily lives. And the books have given me a way to start sharing everything I love about being Jewish with the kids. For example, weekly Shabbat dinners, thanks to the book Dinosaur on Shabbat. As I mentioned, my husband's not Jewish. And although he says he's just in it for the challah, he's definitely developed an appreciation for the culture, values, and traditions, thanks to both PJ Library and Unorthodox. He's as Jewish as an atheist Catholic schoolboy can get. So that's my love letter to you. Keep up the great work, at least until you get to 75,000 subscribers so we can hold Liel to that gun purge promise. There you Stay have it. Jewish, Amanda. <laughs> For those of you who missed it, that was uh, when Liel promised a couple weeks ago that when we get to 75,000 listeners, he's giving up his guns. Where he's giving them to, we don't yet. No. Which organization would be the recipient? <laughs> oh, my God. This is an oldie, a letter that we didn't get to a few months ago when she wrote it. So here you go now. Dear Stephanie, she gets to go first. Mark and Leah. Finally. Your wit, irreverence, and occasional cynicism never fail to bring a smile to my face. What doesn't bring a smile to my parents' faces, however, is my life choices. I'm a student at an Ivy League institution in New Jersey, and my family is Russian, meaning they include among them two doctorates in piano performance, one chess master computer programmer. I'm sorry, is going to school in Jersey <laughs> the new going to school in Boston? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, one also, chess... I really like that segue. You like that things segue? Things that don't, things that my parents, don't she, please my parents. She could host an Orthodox. Uh, also in her family, one chess master computer programmer, one physics professor, and so many engineers I couldn't begin to count. And this is only my immediate family. My younger brother's name is Vladimir, and he plays piano and violin and does gymnastics and chess. My name is Leora, and I literally do none of the above. I can't decide between majoring in Slavic studies with an emphasis on Sovietology and Near Eastern studies. I want to be an academic, which already means I won't be financially independent for longer than my parents like to think about. My stepfather, the physics prof, thinks all my choices are dumb. And my mother, the doctorate in piano performance, thinks I'll never make any money, achieve success, or get married. Particularly after I made the decision to study Persian in Tajikistan, the farthest reach of the former USSR. Given that two of you have PhDs and all of you have made a living as professional Jews after having obtained degrees in concentrations of varying usefulness, I was wondering if you I would say varying uselessness. Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering if any of you have any advice on how I can convince my parents that my choices aren't so bad after all. Or if they are bad, could you please tell me why? Sincerely yours, Leora. I love this letter. You can like almost taste the borscht, right? Like the (laughs) Russian parents are like, but why you want to study such useless thing? Stephanie, she began with you. I think, I mean, it's so weird to have such like intellectually, academically focused parents and then to get pressure on doing your own academic thing. That to me seems a little unfair. I don't know. I would just say, first of all, no one has a job anymore. Like no one's graduating 
don't kid yourself that getting a, a physics PhD will get yeah, you a job. Nothing's nothing's you're screwed no matter what. Um, just kidding. Uh, no, we all are. But I think you should do what you want. And I think you're passionate about these areas for a reason. And I think that you should follow your heart. Liel? This kills me because it like marks like the passage of time in a really weird way from like the rebellious kid to obviously the parent. Are but, you going to give her the oh sensible God. advice? Liora, your parents are totally fucking right. I'm sorry. Academia is so stupid. What are you doing? Go do something useful. I mean, go, go, go learn juggling. Go, you know, go learn like glass blowing. I know you're supposed to say like follow your heart and do something, but like. No, I said follow your heart. Your heart? Yeah. So. I actually met Lior the other day. I was what? talking to a conference uh, of college journalists, Jewish journalists, journalists, and um, she was great. And I told her this already, but I, I was like, look, it's, if you're asking the question, it's because you know the answer. Like the person who says, should I marry him? Is like the person who says, should I be an engineer? Which is if you're asking, the answer is no. The answer is absolutely no. <laughs> the answer is no. Like, if you have to ask a panel of strangers right? on the radio- like, I mean, uh, should I follow my parents' advice? I think you already know. The I think answer, you know the but, answer. But your and parents are smart. Look, they're sensible. They no, love you. They so love much. you, and they, they just love, want you look, to be happy. They love you, and they and they had to get out of the Soviet Union. And I understand that. But okay. they now sacrificed you're here, so much. They Leora. moved here so that you could be an unemployed Sovietologist. Yeah, okay? like to be a Sovietologist. I mean, it's to me, it's such a re- out of so much respect for your family's history. That's you're interested in this. Like, <laughs> but her parents are like, "Are you kidding me? Yeah, they're like, <laughs> we risked everything to get the fuck out of there, and now you're going to study it." Oh, What's Lordy. wrong with you, Lordy? Anyway, plus uh, we don't we don't like people who are too cozy with the Russians in this country so, nowadays. No, so. she might actually be highly employable. Oh, that's right. Anyway, oh, hold on, Leora. How about you actually run the Senate Investigatory Committee of Ties with Russia? See, Sovietology, and she speaks Russian. I checked with her. Okay. Listen, Leora, to, we are appointing you. Th- we're saying follow your heart. There, you you got it. The fact that that we answered your letter on this world famous podcast is God's way of telling you. Do not be an engineer. As ever, write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Go to iTunes, subscribe, rate us, tell your friends to listen. It's a mitzvah. You'll be you'll be doing them a favor. They'll thank you. It's like hot or not.com. Yeah, it's like it's like J it's like J Podcast yeah, Swipe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, swipe right in us. <laughs> swipe. swipe us right into your heart. Uh finally, some Mazel Tovs. Liel. My Mazel Tov is to Noah Max Silverman. Yay. For being the baby of the decade. Yeah, he's very cool. I thought you were gonna like have Mazel Tov to me. No, like as an aunt. That's actually my Mazel Tov. Yeah. My Mazel Tov is to Stephanie, Elise, B- Melissa, Jennifer. What? What's your middle name? Tyler. <laughs> Tyler. Taylor. 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 Sorry, no. First of all, my mom's name is Elise. My middle name is Taylor, like in Swift. You guys and guys obviously do not know me. I thought you were just like saying Why is girls' it Taylor? names. Unclear. My Mazel Tov is to Stephanie Taylor Butnick. Heretofore known as Aunt Stephanie. Thank you, guys. That sounds so full, like Fuller House. Yeah. That sounds very Fuller House. And you, Stephanie? And Stephanie. Who's your Mazel Tov to? Oh, I can't just accept. Yeah, my Mazel Tov is to my sister who just like freaking pushed out that baby. And I saw her after and I just said, I am in awe of you. Epidural or no? Epidural. Good for her. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Our show is edited by Noah Levinson and produced by Alyssa Goldstein and Shira Talushkin. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Dan Fink of Boise, Idaho. Kosher slaughtering by President Hassan Rouhani. Find Tablet on Facebook. On Twitter, we're at Tablet Mag. Our music is by Golem, and we record in Argo Studios, which has just been subpoenaed by the Senate. We're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends. <laughs> <laughs>